Good morning. Um, before we hear Psalm 63 read aloud, we're going to read this prayer uh, by Dr. Howard Thurman. It's entitled, Oh God, I Need Thee. I need thy sense of time. Always I have an underlying anxiety about things. Sometimes I'm in a hurry to achieve my ends and am completely without patience. It is hard for me to realize that some growth is slow, that all processes are not swift. I cannot always discriminate between what takes time to develop and what can be rushed. Because my sense of time is dulled, I measure things in terms of happenings. Oh, to understand the meaning of perspective that I may do all things with a profound sense of leisure of time. I need thy sense of order. The confusion of the details of living is sometimes overwhelming. The little things keep getting in my way, providing ready-made excuses for failure to do and be what I know I ought to do and be. Much time is spent on things that are not very important, while significant things are put into an insignificant place in my scheme of order. I must unscramble my affairs so that my life will become order. Oh God, I need thy sense of order. I need thy sense of the future. Teach me to know that life is ever on the side of the future. Keep alive in me the forward look, the high hope, the onward surge. Let me not be frozen either by the past or the present. Grant me, O patient Father, thy sense of the future, without which all life would sicken and die. And now Psalm 63. Psalm chapter 63. A Psalm of David regarding a time when David was in the wilderness of Judah. O oh God, you are my God. I earnestly search for you. My soul thirsts for you. My whole body longs for you. In this parched and weary land where there is no water. I have seen you in your sanctuary, engaged upon your power and glory. Your unfailing love is better than life itself. How I praise you. I will praise you as long as I live. Lifting up my hands to you in prayer, you satisfy me more than the richest feast. I will praise you with songs of joy. I lie awake thinking of you, meditating on you through the night because you are my helper. I sing for joy in the shadow of your wings. I cling to you. Your strong right hand holds me securely. But those plotting to destroy me will come to ruin. They will go down into the depths of the earth. They will die by the sword and become the food of jackals. But the king will rejoice in God. All who swear to tell the truth will praise him, while liars will be silenced. Well, this psalm is a, is a famous psalm. It, it was actually a psalm that the ancient early church uh, sung at every gathering that they had. And so the early church made Psalm 63 an integral part of their gatherings and services when they got together. And it seems so fitting that today, 
Psalm 63 speaks to our moment as a church, as a city, and in our nation and globally, I believe. I believe we're, we're at a crossroads and we're standing on the tracks today as just sort of a way to get outside and, and sort of perhaps break a little monotony. I know Zoom can be a long haul and we've been doing this for a while. And, and so we thought we'd get out and, and it seems as though the train is moving 100 miles an hour because it is, it is. And, and I believe that the spirit of God is calling us as a, as a community of Jesus followers to, to know our situation and our times so that we can, we can seek God with all that we are and, and be tapped into the movement of God for today in this moment, in this time, and in this generation. And so Psalm 63 begins in the wilderness. It says David had fleed. Uh, he, 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 was, he was chased really into the desert. And some say it was by his own son, Absalom, trying to, to take his life. Some say it was Saul. Either way, we know that David is writing this song from the wilderness. And many of us find ourselves in certain situations today. See, every story, every text, every situation has a story, a backdrop behind it. And David is writing from the wilderness from a particular place in a particular moment in his life. And he writes, you, God, are my God. See, his first sentence is you, Yahweh, Adonai, Jehovah Jireh, Elohim, the one who put the stars in the sky, the one who made it all and set it all into motion. His first word is to acknowledge the God of the nations beyond himself, beyond his situation, beyond the desert where he finds himself. This is, this is so compelling to me that David's very first sentence in this psalm is to the one who he claims to be his God. See, there are a lot of people right now who are turning to lots of different things. We need to tap into resources, and we'll get to that in a moment. But and we need to talk with people, and we need to process, and we need to, to... But our first turn is to the Lord. Our first turn we learn from David, despite the circumstance, despite being in a desolate, open place where there is no water, his first word off his lips is, God, you are my God. Now, in the ancient Near East, this was profound because there were lots of gods, small g gods that people claimed to know and follow, and they would set up shrines and trinkets and all kinds of man-made things to claim who they were with and what they were about. And David takes a stake, and he puts a stake in the ground, and he says, you, God, are my God. He, he, he claims a stake in the ground. He says, you, you are the one I turn to very, my, my, you are my utmost. You are the first one I turn to because outside of myself, I'm nothing. Outside of myself, where else could I turn? And so he says, you, God, are my God. Earnestly, I seek you. Some translations, earnestly, I search for you. Are you searching this morning? You say, Nate, I, I'm, I'm, I don't know. I, I'm, I'm not so good of a Christian. Well, neither am I. Neither am I. And you don't have to have, be super Christian or something to, to seek 
to seek God's face. Just, just take your questions before the Lord. Take your, your, your angst and your anxiety and your worries before this God. Turn them over to this God and let God work in our life together. That's what David is doing. He's setting an example here in the text. He says, earnestly, I seek you. And isn't it amazing that while we're seeking God, God has actually always been seeking us. Can you hear the question in the beginning of the garden of, in Genesis when the Lord walks through the garden and he says, Adam, where are you? Where are you, Adam? Why, why are you hiding behind the bushes? Come on out. Come on out. I've been seeking you. Of course, he knew where he was. But, but God always wants us to know that while we're not the center of the narrative, that the God of the heavens has been pursuing you and I and all of humanity since day one. And of course, we see other examples. Saul is hiding behind the, the luggage when he's, when he's meant to be called out to speak and to lead. And sometimes we find ourselves in hiding. And that question in the soul, God, I search for you. I seek you. We see this example by David. And then, so, so what we noticed, just hang with me for a few minutes here. So his identity is rooted in, in God. His help, he's crying out, God, you are my God. That's his starting point. Then he acknowledges himself. I'm thirsty. I need you, God. I'm searching for you. And then he acknowledges his environment. The place in which he finds himself is the desert. And what does he say in verse 1? He says, in a dry and parched land where there is no water. Now, we're going to stop here for a moment and land here for a minute because this is so important. David acknowledges the God of the heavens. He acknowledges his own need for this God and his own situation, his own thirst. His whole body longs for the living God. Uh, you know, we're made to be whole beings. We need an embodied faith. That's why there's all this talk these days about, about bodies. Lives who are being lost, black bodies, brown bodies. Not only in the United States, around the world. In, in 2016, I attended this funeral for Miss Betty Ruth Jones. And I still have the obituary saved and the service handout. There were all sorts of voices and pastors there that day. You know, she had called 911 and she had gone down not far from where we were living at the time on the west side to help her neighbor in a situation. And the, and the, and the operator told her to wait at the door and, so she, and to answer the door when the police arrived. So she did. And while she opened the door, she was blown to smithereens. She, she, her life was murdered and taken in that moment. And the city at, at that time was crying out. Now, most people in the media have not heard her name. It was more of a local story, but this is such a common thing. And beyond lives being taken, I've seen people harassed in the streets. I've seen many, many other kinds of situations that don't always result in the life of someone being taken. And so there's, there's, there's a wide, wider, there's a much wider spectrum to what's going on than just what we see in the media. But where is our lament? I, I long for us to know the desert that we're in these days. 
I long for us to know our moment and our situation and why it's so important right now. Richard Brooks, you may have heard that name the last few days. His life was taken Friday night in a Wendy's parking lot in Atlanta. That was the Wendy's right down the street from where we used to live. We used to take our children to that Wendy's. See, I think we have to get to a moment where we are, we are uh, less concerned about getting all of this right, all of our rhetoric and our, and our platitudes and, and just get down to it that we need God to stir in us by the movement of the Holy Spirit in a deeper way where we come to a point where our emotion is unrestrained and we're no longer concerned about what other people are going to think or how people are going to process how we're grieving and are each other in our various ways. And that we get to a point where the body of Christ is willing to say enough is enough. We are, are, are complicit in our, in, our, in our silence. Now, please hear me. This isn't wagging a finger. I'm attempting to learn myself. There are so many stories, so many names that it's, it's become countless at times. And we, it, there's so much to process. Please hear me. I wrote a little list of things that I wanted our church as a pastor, okay, to, to know this morning. First, stay at the table when it gets hard. Continue to listen and only go where we are invited or where there is communal confirmation. That there's no one way to speak out that our action is as important online as it is offline and vice versa. That offline we are called to, to speak and to listen and to lean in and to help be change agents of healing wherever we are in all of our different facets, not only on the west side and the south, across the city, wherever we live and work that sometimes justice wears a suit and sometimes it wears a tattoo. We all have a role to play from the boardroom to the streets, that there is a difference between head knowledge and the transformation of our mind. There is a difference between preservation and transformation. See, the good news was meant to be flowing water. John chapter four, John chapter seven, the gospel of John speaks of Jesus, who was the, the, the fountain, who is the fountain of living water. Water, the living water isn't meant to be contained into a certain thing and preserved a certain way for years to come. It's meant to be flowing water. It's meant to, see, it's the same water. When I poured out of this container into the other one, it's the same water, but it takes a different form. And that form is, is in some ways an example of how the good news of Jesus is meant to permeate our lives. And the good news will be expressed differently through me as it will be through you. And together, that's what makes up the beauty of our diverse body of Christ. And the, and the good news takes form in Charlotte differently than it does in Chicago or Atlanta or Shanghai or Jakarta or Santo Domingo or El Paso. And so we keep these things in mind. And so David is saying in a dry and thirsty land where there is no water, our land is crying out for healing. And we must keep in mind that uh, we need certain things in front of us as a church. 
that we need a theology of the public square. We need a theology that says Jesus is Lord and Caesar is not. And if Jesus is Lord, then all of life falls under his lordship. That means every facet of society in our life personally, collectively, and in this city is meant to bring God glory. And so David is crying out in a dry and parched land where there is no water. All our world longs for the flowing fountain of living water through Jesus of Nazareth today, doesn't he? I mean, it, sometimes we, I, I like to snap with something of interacting of like, yes, yes, yes. Leighton Ford just posted two days ago that he had an article, that he had an interview in 1969 calling out for the church to lean into racial strife or the gospel witness would be at stake in 1969 and Tom Skinner told basically there were lots of white Christians saying what can we do what can we do what can we do now it's not this we can't fix the, it's not our role to just we can't fix this in a week this has been a 400 year process what we need to do is go back and get our homes in order and read and listen and but, you know, they were saying the same thing in 1969. When is it going to change? When will the church finally say enough? We are, we're going to repent of the pain that we're causing. See, a part of the desert we're in has been living for hundreds of years. This idea that really thousands, the Greeks, it began with the Greeks. The Greeks formed this class system. There were, you know, there was the wealthy and the nobles and the commoners and then the peasants and then the barbarians, and then the animals. And this class thinking is what shaped what many would call white supremacy. Now, hear me out. This isn't easy for me to talk about. There's no wagging finger here. I'm talking about a system of beliefs, a system of thinking and policy and systems that shape other systems. That's how racism gets institutionalized. And so in the historic church, when this thing called the doctrine of discovery shapes a mindset that says some people are supreme and others are not, some people are human and some are less than human, and then the church takes hold of that in the Western world and says, now go out and take over and take land and take, that, this, is, this is our history. And so we confess and repent of not only what has been done, but what we have left undone. And so our desert is deep and it's wide and it is dry. And we, we can learn from David who's crying out in the wilderness, but, but here's the hope. Verse two, uh, I have seen you in the sanctuary and beheld your power and your glory. He's speaking of what God has done, who God is and how God has carried him forward all of this time. And he says, because your love is better than life. Here's the because, here's the why. Because your love is actually better than life itself, I'll give myself over to you and your way. Because your love is better than life, my lips will glorify you. I will praise you as long as I live. In your name, I will lift up my hands. I will be fully satisfied because the belly is never satisfied. We'll eat today and we'll be hungry tomorrow. And one day, though, 
when Jesus returns to make all things right, there's going to be a banquet so good, so beautiful among the nations where people come together in a way that is in right relationship with God and each other. And it's going to be a feast of the ages. And, and we get a taste of this when we give ourselves over to the one who made it all. When we say, God, we need you, we're thirsty, our land is dry and thirsty. And David sets this example and he says, on my bed, I remember you. I think of you through the watches of the night. You're so good. Your love is so good and deep, it keeps me up at night. I can't help but say thank you for the life that you entrust to us. And we will work to, 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 to extend that life among those who've not yet tasted how good you are. And then he says, because you are my help, or for you are my help. Here's the, the refuge, the salvation, the hope, the strength that we have in the one. This is, he, he's, 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 he's crying out again. He's saying, you are the one I turn to once again. I cling to you, your right hand upholds me. Like, like a mother bird who, 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 who covers her chicks with wings. He takes, he, God takes us in. In the last five minutes here, just a quick note. Now the tide turns. So at the beginning, he acknowledges God. He acknowledges his need within himself. He acknowledges his environment and the situation in which he finds himself. And then he speaks to those around him. And, it, it, and we see the emotive quality here of the Psalms where, where he, he speaks to our affections, the, the human response that some are grieving with deep levels of pain and racialized trauma and confusion and and some of us have lost loved ones, and some of us are dealing with joblessness and hurting families, and the list goes on. And sometimes we've just had enough, and, and, and here we see David, he's had enough. He says, I hope, I hope their lives, I, you know, he's, he's sort of, you can see it in the text, the strong emotion. And if we're honest, sometimes we have those feelings too. And what hit me recently is that sometimes I think it's tempting to claim that we are aligning with David, that, that David is the one who we, we are learning from in this text. And yet, I feel challenged that maybe David is crying out for life because people are chasing him down into the wilderness. Maybe the church at large, the white church at large in the United States needs to confess that and perhaps, perhaps we are ones who are causing pain. That perhaps we are ones who are causing the angst and, and for others to, 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 to cry out. Maybe we're a part of the creating of this situation that we find ourselves in. So there's one way to look at the Bible. When we read the Bible, we can read it top down. And we read through a Western lens and we find ourselves and oftentimes we, we almost claim that we're we're Israel when perhaps we might be more like Rome. Or we, 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 we see ourselves aligning with David when perhaps actually we're the ones causing pain without even knowing it. And so sometimes I'm, I'm trying to learn how to read the Bible, not so much from a top down, but how can I hear 
how, how can we put ourselves under the word of, of, of God to learn from the spirit of God speaking to us through the living word that, 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 that shapes who we become. And as we read the word, the word reads us. And we begin to realize that we need that bottom up perspective of what's happening in our world. And, and so often how the scriptures were written. And so, you know, in closing, I, I have to turn to Jesus. Isaiah 53, it describes Jesus of Nazareth this way. It says, he was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers is silent. So he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. Yet who of his generation protested? And then it goes on to describe, you could read Isaiah 53 this afternoon. So it later says that Jesus essentially willingly laid down his life for our iniquities. And so the good news, the grace in this text is that judgment has not come yet. Not even for the ones David is crying out about. That there's still time to turn to the living God and say, God, we need you, we're thirsty, we're desperate. Please have mercy on us. Forgive us for what we've done and what we've left undone. And we turn to you, the living God, Jesus of Nazareth, the one who knows our sin and our affliction, the one who was afflicted himself, who offers us water in the desert, living water, the kind of water where we will never be thirsty again. I can't imagine my life without life in Jesus. I can't imagine life apart from the living one who knows our pain and, and, and co-suffers with this world. And so we hear at the end, David is crying out on his bed and he remembers the Lord and the watches of the night. And so tonight I, I encourage you to thank God for, for the life and forgiveness that we have in Jesus. And as we continue the journey, stay at the table, choose the hope of Christ, but with sober-mindedness, with attentiveness and listening, with humility, with a crying out for God to help us. Remembering that we're not the center of this story. We thank God for the life he offers.